why do so many married couples stop having sex? Wow. Well, that is a really relevant question because so many couples struggle with that. Um, but it's a complex answer. Uh, let me say probably the lowest hanging fruit in terms of the possible reasons is what we call habituation, which is when you get used to a sexual stimuli, whatever that is, it kind of loses its luster over time. So people just find their sexual partner a little less exciting uh, than they used to, and then they sort of lose motivation um, to, to have sex. So that's one important piece. Another important piece that's related is that um, the exciting, lusty experience of a new partner that most people have, not all, but most people have that thrill of a new relationship, that is based largely on uh, Mother Nature's plan, which is to release this wonderful neurochemical brain bath to make sex super exciting so that you're motivated to have it. But that brain bath wasn't intended to last for 50 years. It was intended to last, uh, at least some sociologists like Helen Fisher suggest, for about three years. So three years means you're with someone long enough to like them, have sex with them, get pregnant, and the, the couple stays together long enough for that child to grow into toddlerhood then you don't really need that incredible sex anymore. So that's the end of that. So couples aren't expecting that. They sort of know intellectually that lust doesn't last for a lifetime. But what people kind of still think is, yeah, but I really love my partner. My partner really loves me. We have great sex. It's not going to happen to us. Or when it does happen, they start to look for other reasons why. So it's happening because my partner's not home enough. It's happening because I'm working too hard and I'm exhausted. You know, these things play a role, but there's a bottom line biology that we can't ignore that easily does get shoved under the carpet. So that's another reason why it can happen. But, oh my goodness, I, you know, I could talk forever on this, like death two days, Ronnie, because... I love it. I love it. I, I want to know. So this is a natural trend that happens. Obviously, you know, it's a it's a joke and a cliche because it's real. But yeah. my question is, is it avoidable? And if it is, how so? What do we need to do to maintain a healthy, you know, vital sex life? OK, so this is sort of what my business has been for my career. I'm a sex therapist and people largely come to me, uh, largely heterosexual couples and long term relationships. And they say, how do we do this? How do we keep this excitement going? Um, and I sort of break it down simplistically into two sort of categories of sex and how to focus on maintaining those over time. So um, there's loving sex, like sex from the heart. And there's more primal, passionate sex, which I call sex from the pelvis, just to make it <laughs> And so what happens is couples can get better or more comfortable at one kind of sex than the other. But if you're just having one kind of sex and you're not doing it in a mindful way, it's going to lose its luster over time. So the goal is, I think, for couples to recognize that they've got to hone skills on lovemaking and they have to allow for um, the sort of like pushing of boundaries and going into territory that might feel a little anxiety provoking. That's the more 
pelvis kind of sex and make sure they keep like um, um, alternating or keeping their sex life varied in those ways. So can I say that skills of lovemaking, of course, no one teaches and people are learning from porn, nothing about this. So skills of lovemaking is like before you meet up with your partner, recognizing why you love your partner, feeling love for your partner. This is like before the two of you even set eyes on each other for your sexual event, right? You're thinking why you feel gratitude, what they've done for you in your life, why you appreciate them. You fill your heart with that. And then when you join them, you allow those feelings through your eyes, which we can do. You know, you know, when you look at someone on TV that you dislike, like a politician, your eyes steal up. You can feel it. <laughs> when you look at like a baby or a kitten, your eyes and you feel that too. So we have to sort of be mindful of what our eyes are showing, what our hands show. You know, when I pick up a piece of paper, I do it one way. When I pick up my cat, it's very different. So recognizing and taking responsibility for what we're demonstrating through our fingers, through our eyes, feeling love, it's not technique. It's showing, it's like letting your body emit that. And both people need to recognize sort of like how to do that and that's lovemaking. That's nothing about technique, but that's everything about a connection. That's the lovemaking piece. And then the other piece we can talk about if you want, but it's more about yeah. like the stuff that gets channeled into porn. That's the more primal, more base. And the thing is, we approach sex from different parts of our brain. So we have this primal part that's hundreds of thousands of years old. That's pretty base. And it's the kind of stuff that people don't really recognize uh, or they want they don't want to acknowledge. So right, when I'll right. ask a client, for example, what do you fantasize about? Well, nine times out of 10, what they're going to say is, oh, you know, the typical stuff. Well, I know that's not true because I know the kind of porn that's popular. But <laughs> <laughs> everybody was watching typical porn. That's what would be out there. But it's not in terms of percentages of answers you get. That can't be can't be the reality. Exactly. <laughs> But the thing is, we all have this frontal lobe that criticizes or critiques what we're looking at. And, and the, that frontal lobe says, oh, no, don't look at that. That's, that's not appropriate. Okay, so that's the stuff that's hard to bring into your relationship, but easy to channel the porn. But ultimately, um, if people can learn to bring a little bit of that excitement, what is it, homeopathy, when you take just a little bit? Is that yeah, right? yeah. Like a yeah. drop in the water and then it has a big effect. That's it. That's exactly. all you need. You don't have to bring that whole drama into the bedroom, but just a little bit for that spark. And so when couples are committed to doing that um, and will commit to channeling energy to these purposes, I think that's the best bet for keeping sex engaging and compelling for decades. That's amazing. There's a few things there that I want to touch on. So... First is the lovemaking, right? Uh, Sue Johnson, who wrote the book Love Sense, you know, yeah. and she is the inventor of emotionally focused therapy, EFT. And one of the things that she says is that, you know, you, you need secure love, secure attachment for hot sex. That's hot right. sex doesn't bring secure attachment. It's the other way around. That's and right. that bond, that security, that safety and I think men don't always understand this. When a woman feels safe, she can be much more open mm -hmm. and she can be open to exploration or whatever. 
But that sense of security can also just relax her at the end of the day. Some women are so stressed out that they don't, they, you know, that dynamic doesn't happen. And that security within a relationship, that oxytocin, you know, that yes. lovemaking, that's yes. amazing. On the other hand, what you said of like the more primal. So I'm hearing two things here. One is the novelty of it. People lose the novelty, which they had at the beginning. This is a new person. You're flooded with all of the love chemicals. And that's a lot of dopamine, you know, lighting you up. And if you do spice things up, if you change things up, if you introduce, you know, kind of new dynamics into your sex life, that gets the dopamine going. That helps. And that primal stuff that you're talking about, right? We don't like to talk about it today in our kind of men are, and women are equal and everything is the same. There is a, a very primal power dynamic in sex. Yes. If you lose it, sex becomes less interesting. Absolutely. So what is that power dynamic? Wow. Okay. So much here. Um, can I go back to your first point? Yes. Yes. About safety before I go. Okay. Of course. Of course. I am completely behind what you're saying, that women need that oxytocin, that safety in order to open. But here's where it gets really confusing for men, is we need that safety, but we still need them strong. A yes. woman, okay, a woman's not going to open sexually if she's the strongest person in the bedroom. Because if she feels like she's the strongest one in the room, she's not going to relax and open. She's got to stay in charge. So right. it's a mixed message we give men. So that loving tenderness cannot come at the expense of his groundedness and his power. And we also give men a mixed message. Well, first of all, no one understands this complexity. I think, well, no one is probably the wrong term to use, but most people don't understand this complexity. Right. So it's hard to even teach a man because we don't know what to teach him about these these differing energies on that differing energies i think it's it's a really important point that we we don't talk about enough right but women at the end of the day they want someone who's very strong and right. and, and women have a challenge here right you want someone who's very masculine but at the end of the day can soften with you and that sense of security that comes from having a man who you feel like can protect you right. on a very primal level you know, That's he right. can scare off the bad guys, right. but, but he's also able to tame that masculinity and that very aggressive energy and also be soft. So that dynamic right. is, 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 is a dance. You know, it's difficult for women to find someone with that, those rare qualities. Sometimes you'll go for someone who's very macho and doesn't know how to soften or someone who's, you know, the typical nice guy and mm -hmm. lacks, lacks that aggression. Right. Which makes you feel safe, paradoxically, right? Absolutely true. It's 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 in our DNA. You know, um, I I have used the analogy that always cracks me up. That is, <laughs> I don't know, um, of the Fifty Shades of Grey concept. You know, so that's an extreme, and it sort of right. like uh, it takes this this dynamic to BDSM. But there's a, a valid point here, and that is that first of all, that book sold a astronomical amounts of it was onto something it was oh, onto something for sure and the the story in a nutshell is the super powerful wealthy intelligent man who owned whatever and was a pilot or whatever else and he 
falls for, becomes obsessed with a naive woman, maybe a virgin, I'm not sure, but sexually inexperienced. And it becomes this dance between them. And, and women loved that book. Now, right. there is no book. There is no book of it. Powerful, gorgeous woman who's a pilot and she owns a company, a multi-billionaire. And she becomes obsessed with a man in the mail room of her company who delivers mail to her every day. And he appears to be a virgin and is very passive, but she can't stop thinking about him. And she leads him sexually to new places and ultimately marries him. That book's not going to sell. Right. It doesn't exist. It's just, it doesn't work. And it doesn't exist, not because there are male publishers that are saying, we're not selling that book. It's not because of a patriarchy. People will sell a book because it sells. People will right, produce right, right. So no one's going to buy that book. So that's an extreme example of what you're talking about. No, it does work. And I think that when we lose that, and I think this this might sound funny, right? But there are certain uh, places in our lives in our lives that we are able to kind of recreate these very primal relationships. For example, this might sound funny, right? But, you know, Caesar Milan, the dog trainer, you yes. know who I'm talking about? The dog whisperer. So he talks about the walking the dog. That's where you kind of establish the relationship. Whatever else happens with the dog, this is the most important part of the day that, uh -huh. you know, he doesn't walk in front of you. He walks next to you or behind you. And that's the that's the dominance kind of relationship. I hope this is landing with anyone who's listening, right? But and I I told uh, I told my husband a similar thing about children around the dinner table. This is a place where they learn that they need to behave. They sit with the adults, you know. Mm -hmm. And this is a repetitive action habit that this is where we assert a certain kind of established rules. Uh, for how things are done and what the relationship is, what the power dynamics are, and whatever the situation is in your life, in your marriage, you know, the bedroom is a place where you can reenact those primal um, yeah. desires, those primal kind of patterns. Um, so so it, it's definitely touching on something. And I think that the narrative today loses that. You know, we, we talk about strong women and I, I see a lot of women really putting their guard up, you know, when it comes to dating, when it comes to relationships, they're so defensive and they're so protective that they, they don't let themselves, you know, even I'm putting sex to the side for a minute, they don't let themselves soften in front of their man because that they're they, they feel like they need to constantly be strong yeah. and i think people lose a lot of opportunities for connection that way i think that's right what have you found in terms of the common kind of misunderstandings that women have of men and that men have of women that you know keeps them coming back to uh, the relationship psychologist's office so my first reaction to that is i think um, there is a grave misunderstanding of the differences between the, the sexes in the bedroom. I want to say that I was raised by what we would traditionally consider a feminist mother. 
And she said to me, there's no difference. There's no difference between men and women. I embraced that. I mean, of course I could do anything a man could do. That wasn't a concern to me or that's what I was taught, right? But right. we never, of course, talked about how this might play out sexually. And the thing is, in the bedroom, it's different. We can all be the same in the boardroom, but we can't be the same in the bedroom. And that's because this is a very primal, um, instinctive drive that's been built into us for hundreds of thousands of years. So we have a lot of backing for who we are in the bedroom. So here's what I saw in my therapy room as a new sex therapist that I didn't know how to understand. Women would say things like, I don't care if I ever have sex again. Now, I don't know that I've heard that from a man, but I've heard that from a lot of women. I've heard frequently women say, you know, I used to like when my, these are heterosexual women, when my partner went down on me, I don't like it anymore. And men would say, I used to be able to do this with her. Now she doesn't want it. Very confusing. I would hear... I would hear males say, when, my, when I see my partner undress, it turns me on. But when she sees me undress, she couldn't care. So there were these clear distinctions in, in behavior and reactions that I didn't know how to understand. And I think those, those distinctions are still confusing to people. And the way I did come to um, make sense of it all was through evolutionary theory and that we are are the result of evolution and adaptations that our ancestors made to successfully reproduce. I use the analogy of gardening. If you come to me and say, I'm hungry and I want, I need to build a vegetable garden. And I say, here, have as many seeds as you want and come back for more if you want. Well, for you to build your garden, if you're serious and hungry, you're just gonna, excuse me, throw those seeds around. And whatever's <laughs> fertilized, good for you, you've got food. If you were being particular, you'd have less food. So you're just going to be very liberal about your um, planting habits. Now, if you come to me and say, I need seeds, I'm starving, I need to grow a garden. And I say, eh, here's eight seeds. Well, now you're going to have very different strategies for gardening. If all you have is eight seeds, you're going to look at the sunshine and the, and the fertilization of the soil and how much water you're getting. And you're going to plant those seeds super carefully. And that's what's going to enable you to eat. So it's really those very basic strategies that were inherent in people's almost personality, really, that allowed them to reproduce. And that's what we've inherited. And so that's what I see in the, in the bedroom today. In fact, you know, I'm just going to read this. I have a, I'm working on a, sure, sure. a lecture here. And this is something that I like to, to highlight this point. Um, this is what I hear from women who talk to me about when, why it can be difficult to want sex. She'll say, the kids are nearby and it's hard to want sex with the kids in the house. And it's hard to be both a mom and uh, a lover. Like those are competing roles and it's difficult to combine them and my body image isn't good since I've had kids and my partner doesn't do enough around the house and my partner's not home enough anyway we don't have enough family time which leaves the burden on me my partner watches too much porn and his sexual technique isn't that good anyway um, and he's not as attractive as he used to be and I'm really stressed at work and I'm sleep deprived and my parents weren't good role models for a loving relationship. 
And then these religious messages are in my head not to have sex. And I don't have enough time for myself, let alone having having time for my partner. And I've got these medical problems that are interfering um, with my desire for sex. And I'm on these medicines with side effects that reduce my. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And it's true. Like for most women, it's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a few things in that kind of a list of things. First of all, I think this is really where emotional intimacy comes into play. When you're at a stage where you've already had kids and your hormones aren't geared towards keeping your mate around, you know, and, and pair bonding, but they're geared towards, you know, childcare. That's, that's a different system. And I think that emotional intimacy you know, John Gottman had this uh, little kind of tongue-in-cheek comment where he said, sometimes washing the dishes is foreplay, yes. <laughs> you know? So if you're a man who's married and wants to be having more sex with his wife, doing little things around the house, getting her relaxed, you know, making sure the kids are put to bed, things like that to help her kind of uh, unwind and calm down and be in that mental space, that's really important. Another thing that you said, the medications, I think that the less uh, pharmaceuticals you can take, the better. And I think a lot of women aren't really aware of the serious effects of birth control pills, right? Mm -hmm. Oral contraceptives, they just kill your libido. Uh, I was on them from, I don't know, 16 to 23 or something. And thankfully, you know, I, I got off them and it takes you a lot of uh, time to recuperate and for your body to find its uh, natural rhythms again. But most women who are on these pills forever, you know, and probably if they're on them, you know, from their teenage years, it didn't affect you know, their sex drive that much because their hormones are so crazy anyways. But at some point you lose interest and you don't realize it. And that really affects marriages. Absolutely true. And in fact, in sexual medicine, the first thing that is typically done is, is uh, for women who are concerned about libido or other things, sexual pain also, arousal yes, yes. also, um, is to either change her pill to a different formulation or take her off the pill totally. Now, I do want to say this doesn't happen for everyone, but it is a significant issue to the point that it is the first line thing to do in sexual medicine. So absolutely true. Um, and absolutely true about medicines having side effects that people don't anticipate. Um, in sexual medicine, we're very pro-hormone replacement therapy. So I want to put a plug in for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please say more about that. At, at what age does that start? Wow. So that's a good question. And so perimenopause can occur um, for some women on the early side, about age 35, um, but more in, in terms of more typically 40, early 40s. And what goes along with, with perimenopause is mood problems, sleep problems, um, it, it, low libido, um, lots of stuff that we have really got very sound research now that shows that HRT, meaning testosterone, estrogen, progesterone replacement, um, is protective for so many things for women and helpful with these issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's really important to know. 
because yeah. there was a, a narrative around this that it increased breast cancer, right. uh, which was very alarming, but it was kind of a false alarm. Uh, yes. And if you balance it with progesterone, that risk really goes away and the yes. benefits outweigh the costs in an astronomical sense. And about that, I had um, an issue when I was 25. I was living in a mold infested apartment and mm. my hormones, my sex hormones just dropped and I didn't realize what was going on. But it gave me kind of like a glimpse into what menopause would be because my levels were menopausal. Oh. And, you know, you're 25 and I'm healthy and I'm exercising and all of a mm -hmm. sudden I have no energy. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost a sense that you're losing your vitality. So I, I really feel for women who are going through that. And I think hormone replacement therapy, if you do it in the right way and, you know, at the right time, uh, mm -hmm. it could have a really good effect. So Absolutely. something to think about. And the right time, uh, what research suggests is if you're not uh, getting on HRT when you're perimenopausal, um, within the first five years of becoming menopausal is really where it can continue to be protective for a woman as she ages. But right. after five years, it's not like don't go on it. But the thing is, uh, degeneration has started to happen. And so that can't be fixed sort of by hormones. Right, right. Starts. Yeah. So right, right. I love that you are speaking about this because women don't know, um, I think. Physicians are scared still. One, one of the things that I learned from that whole experience is that uh, physicians aren't really geared towards women's health. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, respectfully, I yeah. walked into a few doctor's offices and they wanted to put me on birth control pills and they wanted to give me antidepressants. Yeah. And I just had mold in my apartment. And I found oh, no. one functional medicine doctor who was oh. like, ready to play Sherlock Holmes with me and, you know, think about a bunch of things and test out a bunch of things. And we found the issue. But but definitely, definitely, I think that uh, it's important to know that there's something that you can do. And, you know, I'm very in favor of uh, going natural uh, wherever you can, but there are certain places where the benefits mm -hmm. are definitely worth it. What else can men do listening to this who... Mm -hmm you know, love their wife, they, they're, they're invested 100% in the relationship and they're not having as much sex as they would like. What are okay. some of their options? Okay, so first of all, I would say recognize that that list that I read a few minutes ago is her body doing what, has, what her body is designed to do. That goes back to what we talked about in terms of evolution and her being more particular with regards to sex. So her body's working. Mother Nature didn't intend for her to have a high sex drive through her lifetime. Now, some women do. Women, for example, who are bisexual have higher sex drives. Uh, women who are single have higher sex drives. We can talk about that if you want. But in longer-term relationships, sex drive does tend to diminish and these, what we call inhibitory factors, show up more. And for single women, there, uh, there are. This is actually exactly why the the people say women and men have the same sex drive. It's because they get confused between when people are single and when people are in a long term relationship. It's right there. So in when when yeah. So this goes back to evolution and it's called mating strategies, short-term mating strategies and long-term mating strategies. So in a short-term mating strategy, these are people that aren't in a committed relationship and they have different motivations for sex. So a female not committed 
uh, is motivated for sex, not just because of her sex drive, which often is at the highest point in her life if she's in her 20s, um, but also she's motivated for sex and it feels like it's a sex drive because she wants to be touched and she wants a connection. Maybe she wants a baby. Lots more motivations for sex at that time, including a higher uh, hormone, higher testosterone level. So she, her sexual behavior is much more like that of a man's. And so that's when people say women and men's sex drive are the same. They're looking at that data, the, the college student data, for example. But if you look at data from a long-term relationship, we actually don't have a single study suggesting that women and men's sex drives are even equivalent in a long-term relationship. Not even equivalent do we have one study. We, unless there's something not written in English that I haven't seen, which is possible, <laughs> But I, I actually just reviewed probably this. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so even as, as, as recently as last year, I reviewed this literature via, for a chapter I was writing. Um, in a long-term relationship, women have lost that motivation uh, for having a baby. She doesn't need motivation for partnership. She's probably getting enough touch from her kids and her sex drive is lower. So now in this long-term relationship, she's lost all this desire for sex. Um, so it helps for both, both partners to understand this. So first of all, nobody's doing anything wrong. Nobody, we're not pathologizing anybody. This is how bodies are designed. And mother nature couldn't care if you had sex for your whole life or not. That wasn't her plan. So back to your question of what can he do? So first of all, recognizing this is the lot of a heterosexual couple and all heterosexual couples with very few uh, exceptions have to deal with this. So first of all, I talk about the couple. It goes sort of back to what you're saying about this intimate connection. Um, she needs to feel his body as a place to rest. Mm -hmm. She needs to feel, first of all, past, uh, with sex aside, she needs to feel like that's where she goes to recharge. That's where she goes when she's stressed. That's where she goes to get comfort. We start there. until we achieve that sensation, it's going to be very difficult to go from that to enjoying sexual stimulation. That reminds me of a, a experiment that Sue Johnson talks about where they uh, put women in an fMRI machine, you know, showing their activation in their brain. And there was like a distressing stimuli. There was like something threatening that was going to give them an electric shock. And it was mm -hmm. painful as well. And they did this experiment in a few conditions, one where the woman was alone, one where she was holding the hand of a stranger, and one where she was holding the hand of her partner. And okay. what they found is if they were securely attached, okay. then the pain was completely reduced. It was subjectively you know, uncomfortable but not painful. And in okay. terms of the actual brain activity, it was... Um, you know, completely unexistent in terms of uh, how painful it was. And if the couple wasn't securely attached, that didn't happen. That the husband holding the hand was no better than a stranger holding her hand. So uh -huh. I think that's really important for people to understand that mm -hmm. the quality of your relationship really affects a woman on a physiological, neurological level. And if you can get there, if you can get to that secure attachment, you know, she she feels relaxed with you. That's right. 
That's so important and that's so powerful. And then that translates into the bedroom. That's exactly right. That's exa- so once you've achieved that piece, then um, I would say to him, help her identify what does excite her. So there, there, there's um, a, a model of sexual desire put out by the Kinsey Institute that's called the dual control model. You've probably heard of it. So there are excitation factors, things that make us want to have sex and inhibition factors, things that make us not want to have sex. And women have more inhibition factors like the list I read. They have fewer excitation factors. And what can happen for women as they go through life is they lose touch with what even could be an excitation factor, which kind of just makes sense. Life is stressful and stress closes us. So, you know, when we're stressed and we're reading the news and, oh my gosh, it's just like, this is what happens and there's no good sex from here. You're only going to identify what's exciting from here. So it requires mindful effort to identify what could be exciting. Um, and he can help her do that, not in a naggy kind of way, but how can he support her perhaps in identifying what could be exciting for her now? And what I encourage women to do is either watch porn, read erotica, but the trick is she's got to suspend her criticism because her body can still respond in a way that is exciting, but her brain can say, back to what we talked about earlier, that's not PC. Yeah, don't like that. And if she's <laughs> going to criticize everything, she isn't going to find what's exciting. So in whatever way he can help her or support her in doing her own exploration, he doesn't need to be in on it. It might be something she needs to do alone, but she, without knowing what excites her, Sex isn't going to be enough to get her going, I don't think. What usually has to happen is she needs to start reminding her body she's sexual, masturbate a little bit without having an orgasm, read some erotica, listen to some erotica, look at a little porn, whatever. Get her body sort of moving in that direction again. And then once she identifies some factors, maybe together they can identify how to bring that into the bedroom in a way that she feels good about and comfortable enough with, and they can kind of expand on. So that's what, that's the advice I usually give couples. Right. There's, there's a lot in that. I think, first of all, it's just being in your body. It's being in touch with how you feel, what sensations are going through your body on a day-to-day basis, you know, just having that kind of dialogue with yourself. And some women lose that, you know, they're so in the, uh, you know, caring for others and the hustle and bustle of their daily lives. And they've disconnected themselves. They've dissociated from their physical being. Then sex is such a natural physical thing that it's very difficult to translate you know, into that uh, kind of language. Yeah. And so, so I think that self-exploration and that being in touch with yourself, that's in the sexual sphere, but it's also outside of the sexual sphere is really important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wonder for women who are, uh, you know, they were raised in a very religious setting, how, okay. how that can be undone. Because there are certain conservative values that I'm 100% with, you know, the fact that husband and wife, this is a vow for life. This is, you know, your ride or die. And and this is the place where you call home. I'm 100% behind that. 
but the way I see things is that there's nothing holier, you know, than sex within a marriage. And women who are also criticizing themselves for their sexual desires within a healthy marriage, you know, under one roof, uh, within a family, that that just honestly makes me sad because there's nothing pure and there's nothing better you can do for your love life and for your family life than having that intimate connection with your husband to, to keep him, you know, feeling like a man. It's also something that uh, we don't talk about, but how how much men need to feel like they're, you know, doing a good job, like they're able to satisfy their woman. That's something we we don't like to talk about, never force me, never make me, you know, do something that I don't want to do. Obviously, that everything uh, within a limit and everything, uh, you know, between uh, people who love each other and uh, want the best for each other. But I don't think that we talk about the psychological effect that that has on the man who feels like he's not wanted uh, and he's not manly anymore in her eyes. So how how do you how do you find uh, this effect on men? What have you seen? So many. Okay, can I go back? Oh, of course you can. Of course you can. <laughs> One thing I wanted wanted to say is you are so right about that disembodiment that happens for all of us. And with technology now, and we're all on computers all the time, we're just all above the neck. Cognitive, yes. No good sex from there. Now, <laughs> now, the wonderful thing is we have great research that shows that if you're willing to meditate a little bit every day, like 10 minutes, or go to yoga three times a week, that's going to help counteract this problem. So if you have listeners who are saying, gosh, I don't even know what turns me on. I am completely disconnected from my body. That's what you can do. And the yoga or meditation, and it doesn't have to be a huge commitment either, which is so cool. And even better, it affects so many aspects of your life. So if it's good for your sex life, it's really, it's good for your life. It's good for your relationship. So it's not just about making your sex life better. It's really going to, um, the odds are very good that it's going to improve your experience of life more generally. So let's just give that Absolutely. as a key. Absolutely. As far as the religious messages um, yeah. are easily absorbed about that, that, that counteract people letting go into sex and enjoying sex. Honestly, how I deal with that uh, is might sound silly, but we actually do have research behind how this is helpful. That is both neurological kinds of research, but also just anecdotal. If what I would have, if I had a client in my office who was concerned about that, which I do all the time, I ask her to think back or him, I ask, but often her. So I ask her to think back to a moment where that message felt very real to her. So she can remember a moment she was in a place of religion. She was getting a lecture from her parents or or whatever. She heard someone else being shamed. And it. yeah, that yeah. sense of shame was, you know, visceral in how right. she felt it all of a sudden. Absolutely. Exactly. So and the more she can feel that I'd have her imagine it. Tell me about the what she's seeing. Feel it in her body. And then who she is now. She closes her eyes in my session, goes back and talks to that young woman. How would you parent that child if that was your daughter? Or what does it, what do you want that child to really understand? 
What's being miscommunicated there? And reteach, reteach that younger person. As silly as that sounds, it is incredibly helpful. Now, you may need to go back and reteach yourself at several points of life. It might not just be one five-minute interaction, but you know your you know the wisdom that you want to impart to her. So you just have it's really a matter of what's going on is your frontal lobes, your your conscious mind is communicating with your unconscious mind through this imagery, and you're allowing your wisdom from here to seep back here and it is helpful. So that's how I handle that. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. No, that's really, really good advice because I think knowing where these kind of unconscious uh, influences are coming from and rewriting, you know, from our adult perspective today, something that we internalized as 15-year-olds, that right. has a very big effect. That's right. And if she finds that she gets to know that 15-year-old well enough that she can feel her show up in her body before sex, like, okay, there's that, yep. there's that feeling. So then take a little moment, connect with that 15 year old. I understand you're feeling uncomfortable. Let's put you over here. Everything's fine. And like soothe her. Yep. Um, and so it, you know, we really do have parts of ourselves that are kind of stuck in our heads and we can have relationships with them. We just can. Um, it's really just about connecting to our unconscious, which is very difficult to do. So we need these little strategies and tricks to do it. So, yeah. So absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah. We're not uh, masters in our own house, uh, as the <laughs> saying goes. And we're, you know, multifaceted beings and just knowing that there are different uh, forces that are pushing and pulling us. And the fact that these early experiences We've internalized them, but you said they're unconscious. They're kind of operating on us and they're making a certain emotion rise. You know, for a woman who has shame around sex, that sense of shame just bubbles up and she doesn't realize where it's coming from unless she explores it. And, you know, she can tell that young 15 year old, I'm 38, I'm married, I have two beautiful children, a husband who loves me and who's faithful to me. You know, this. There's no shame here. That's right. That's actually absolutely right. And there's a book, and I can't think of the title, but this is based on a form of therapy called um, Internal Family Systems. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And there are there's at least one book on how to do, it's called IFS, how to do IFS on yourself. And that's essentially what we're talking about. Parenting. Yeah. So if your listeners are uh, wanting more information about this, I would just encourage them to look into that IFS literature and there she'll find a self-help book that'll help guide her. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm speaking with someone who he's a clinician and he uses IFS soon. So Great. we'll, we'll dive into that. Wonderful. So I have more questions for you. Excellent. One of the things that I think concerns a lot of people these days is infidelity. You yeah. know, we're, we have a very, um, shaky form of monogamy these days. And to be perfectly honest, I researched, I just Googled books on monogamy because I'm a believer and I'm writing a book right now on relationships and the importance of monogamy on the individual level, on the family, on the societal level. I think that even if 
it's not uh, something that you see across the animal species. I think it's what makes us human. And I think mm -hmm. that Western civilization has evolved uh, the way it has because of monogamy. And we can get into that later if we have time. But one of the things that we're seeing today is this push towards polyamory. You know, when yeah. I was uh, researching, Googling books on monogamy, all I saw come up was books yeah. on polygamy and polyamory. Yeah. And I was just stunned. I was like, I just want to know what the history of is. And I found this brilliant book on marriage and civilization or something like that. But there was really one out of like 100. And usually you hear about these open relationships in your personal life, like uh, friends and uh, acquaintances, and they all break up at the end. <laughs> Everyone that I've heard of, or they close up the relationship really quick because they realize uh -huh. this is not... This is not working. Mm -hmm. So infidelity, you know, in this case, is something that we do see. And some people think it's inevitable these days. Mm -hmm. First of all, what kinds of infidelity are there? Because obviously, you know, cheating, sleeping with somebody else, that's clear cut. But then there are all of these gray areas uh, that, you know, maybe are harder to define. So yeah. what do those look like? And are they inevitable? Right. Um, so, so many gray areas, especially now as technology and sex tech has taken off. So this started, we started to see a shift in um, the accessibility of affairs and infidelity when Facebook showed up on the scene and people were able to contact old lovers and old people. Oh, wow. Well, whatever else. So that became very simple. So now, so what that brought in is this whole um genre of online infidelity that really goes anywhere from emotional connection and um, sharing sort of secrets and emotional content that really your partner probably wouldn't want you sharing kind of stuff um, to actual sex online through avatars and uh, whatever else. There's sexting with a phone, which is super common. Um, so the technology has brought a whole other level of like cheating opportunity um, but of course, then there's also old fashioned intercourse and there are apps that facilitate that. So, uh, for example, Ashley Madison is an app where um, uh, committed people can go online and uh, pay a price and meet other people who are in committed relationships who want to hook up. So, I mean, and there's a whole hookup kind of app culture out there. So this Ashley Madison site was actually hacked. I think about five years ago, it made the news in the U.S. It was hacked. And they... Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. They were... Really, yeah. They revealed the people who were in it. And they also, I, they also revealed that many of the female profiles were made up. These weren't even real. And Ashley Madison wow. is still... It's still an active site. That, that didn't discourage people from participating. Wow. <laughs> So there's a lot of that out there. So, you know, there's emotional affairs and then there's sexual affairs, either in reality or online. So there's many opportunities. Right. And there's both. porn, but then there's OnlyFans, you know, and even that there's like a distinction of what's worse. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much. So, you know, is it inevitable? I don't know. I, I can't take a stand on that. I don't feel comfortable saying it is inevitable. But I can tell you that I do find myself often helping couples find 
a middle ground. Very few people want to branch into polyamory, nor do I recommend it. I do that work with couples who want to do it, um, but it's not what most people want. And I would agree with you that it often fails. Um, it's a it's a a, a different uh, such a different way of approaching intimacy. So that's not uh, uh, my tendency with couples is to see how we can first of all enhance sex like we've talked about using the techniques that that we've dis discussed already today. But also, is there a way to use sex tech um, to the advantage to bring a little bit of variety in the relationship in a way that is exciting? So. Frankly, things like VR porn, which is super potent, but if it's and it feels very real, much more so than typical porn. But if a couple is looking to add some some little excitement or I don't want to say little, but some variety um, that is comfortable for each of them, that's something that really can be helpful to give them a little more to do um, that doesn't break the contract of monogamy. So that's often the way I think with the couples I'm working with is, is where's the wiggle room and can sex tech offer that to give people a little more variety. I've also worked with people who will like agree to some sexting if it's, you know, under these certain rules. Now this stuff is a gray area. So I'm not sitting here saying to you, this is a solution or works for everybody, but sometimes people are so, um, at a loss with how to proceed that I am looking to help them think creatively. So, you know, if they can sext, um, but keep it to that, um, that can sometimes generate enough sexual energy for people that they can bring it back into the bedroom. Um, and, you know, with committed couples who are really working hard, they're often very motivated to follow rules and to try these smaller steps um, to help make monogamy feel more exciting again. Interesting. Yeah, no, I'm sure that, you know, when people when people come to you, it's at a situation where they're kind of at a loss of mm -hmm. what to do. And, you know, right. you have a really great article in your Psychology Today blog that says what happens when you still want to have sex, just not with your partner. And this is a situation that people find themselves in. I am yeah. interested who have you found has a harder time with monogamy? What kinds mm -hmm. of people struggle with monogamy more? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, that blog is my most popular blog by far. I mean, hundreds of thousands of hits. That, that wow. That, that tells you something. That tells you something. Because that's something that people are, you know, facing. Yes, absolutely interesting, true. Interesting. Do you have uh, like analytics on uh, whether it's male or female viewers? I don't, but that would be a great, that would, that be, would be interesting. <laughs> and you know what I would say? Um, it, 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 perhaps what seems to me the bottom line of that, you want to have sex, just not with your partner. Don't take that too seriously. Like that doesn't mean that much other than you're a primate and that's life. So like you're saying, that doesn't mean you have to do anything about it or that you're bad. You know, it, 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 it does mean do what you can to enhance your relationship. Like it does mean that there's probably room to improve your uh, sexual relationship with your partner, but it doesn't mean, okay, now you have to do something about it outside of the relationship. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. I think that, you know, 
we we have a lot of feelings we have a lot of thoughts you know and right. even if we right. repress the thoughts we, they can come up in our dreams you know it's just how it is uh, that's right but at the end of the day if, you know your values are being in a committed relationship and staying faithful those desires can be channeled into positive direction so yeah as you said they don't you don't need to freak out over that right. and that doesn't mean that you know you guys weren't meant to be there's right. also ebbs and flows of life, you know, yeah. and when you are at the very beginning of the relationship uh, versus right after you had a child versus five yeah. years after you had a child, you know, these are different periods of life. And I do think that it is important for both sides to be really committed to satisfying each other in the sexual sphere, but also outside of the sexual sphere. Absolutely. And I think that this narrative of, you know, men just need to deal with their sex drive on their own. I don't feel like it. That that really emasculates a man. Um, and oh and my gosh, yes. that has real psychological effects. And he, he wants to feel like you want him. You know, you're right. in a committed relationship. You love each other. Uh, I think I think that we don't talk about this enough. I honestly. think you're so right that 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 feeling of of needing to feel wanted by your partner is is absolutely healthy and natural that's not um immature or um narcissistic um this is something that we all need to feel wanted and we all need to feel loved and it needs to be demonstrated and whatever way. So absolutely. You asked me um, right. who has a harder time with monogamy. And let me say, first of all, we've got research that, you know, there's a genetic component here that um, some people are are more from a genetic perspective, more inclined toward monogamy, others not. There's a personality piece. So more extroverted people, but so there are personality traits and there are hormonal factors too. So people who are particularly high in testosterone, for example, would tend to have a more challenging time with monogamy than folks not. So there's some of this basic biology and genetics that plays in. Um, but in terms of, and we also have great research about in long-term relationships, in spite of a kind of a decline in that Initial excitement, which we talked about earlier, um, males in general are still okay with maintaining monogamy in their long-term relationship more so than females. Females are more apt um, to shut down and to essentially either stop having sex or end the relationship. So Interesting. How do you explain that? I sort of imagine males testosterone levels are generally high enough um they're kind of happy to have sex now they might say in a perfect world yeah i'd have sex with someone else too but they're kind of just if they stay in a sexual relationship most of them not all there's a subset of men that would not would not be uh sort of like that more traditionally alpha like very blatant alpha guy would not apply that'd be the higher testosterone guy he wouldn't apply to what i'm saying but the majority of men um for the most part they're okay with this same partner over time whereas females find they're more discriminating you know they have more reasons not to have sex and they get to a point where they'd rather just not than have what they call or would consider substandard sex 
So the inhibitions kind of take over and they'll either stop or they'll look for another partner. Now, if they look for another partner, the whole lust thing is going to start over again. That whole short-term memory system or or short-term mating system is going to start over. That's just biology doing what biology is meant to do. Unfortunately, what will happen in that situation is she'll say, see, I wasn't meant to be with my partner. Look how great my sex is now. Well, that's a new partner and that's mother nature helping her out in a new relationship. So I'm throwing a lot at you, I know. Yeah, no, no, this is great. This is great. I think that just knowing that these tendencies exist, right? Right. Knowing that women's sex drive can drop and that it takes a lot of investment to keep the spark going. If your values are to stay in a committed relationship, which I know mine are, that takes work. And right. and thinking that nature will just do its thing and, you know, our sex life is going to be amazing. Like if you don't court each other, if you don't go on dates, if there's no, you know, right. foreplay outside of the bedroom, if you're not intimate together and if you don't feel like he is your safe place and if he doesn't feel like you are his safe place, place where he can soften at the end of the day after being so hard and masculine and strong for everyone you know and he can just decompress that's those are things that men need as well and and i think that our sex life at the end of the day is kind of a reflection of how our lives are going how our relationship is going and you know monogamy i think is a beautiful thing i think that we're uh, built for it, you know, just in terms of the research that I've done on attachment and pair mm-hmm. bonding. Uh, you know, life is long and it's better to live it with someone who knows you uh, better than you know yourself, you know, a partner in crime, sure, someone sure. who can be with you during the hardships of life because life isn't your 20s, you know, until you, until, you know, age 100. Having someone who's close to you. Uh, who's intimate with you, who understands you, who can support you, you can support each other. I think that's much more valuable than a cheap thrill. Uh, And I think that if you value that, it's really, really important to, you know, invest in it and uh, pay attention to it and see what you can do to uh, make each other satisfied and happy and fulfilled and and not to take each other for granted and, you know, not expect that this ship is going to run smoothly if, uh, if you don't maintain it. Uh, so put it simply. True. I love your talking about, I don't know that you used the word flirting, but you essentially were yep. speaking that. That is such a necessary element for a satisfying sex life over time. And it's unfortunately one of the the parts of life that's really easy to let go of when life is stressful, which it is for everybody. And there's so much to focus on that it's easy to get lazy and to come home after work and just stop with the play and the flirting. But that's such a critical cornerstone, I think, for long-term relationships. So I love that. And I also want to say that as the world gets crazier, I do think we have to start, you know, in our own house and connect and love. Um, yes. And I, I don't know how we're going to 
deal with it in a universal sense if we can't deal with it in our own houses. So to me, this is like step one into creating the world we want our children to inhabit. It is, we got to start at home, I think. I 100% agree. You know, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that's an important message. And you start with your intimate relationship. You start with your family, and you can create your own corner of paradise. You know, yeah. in in that uh, relational sphere, and it has a real impact. Uh, so yeah. I think I think it's a really really important message. I do want to talk a little bit about before we close. You have written a lot in your Psychology Today blog about this whole trend of AI robots and, uh, you know, all of this uh, stuff that's happening. And I think I would just like to say we left off with this beautiful message of monogamy. But I, I, I do think that these things are happening because we are, as a culture, devaluing monogamy. And a lot of men are finding themselves uh, you know, with, without partners, uh, you know, women are being told that career is the most important thing. And yeah. while it's important and your self-fulfillment is important, you, you, you know, you're missing out on a huge uh, potential for fulfillment, which is through relationship and through children and building a home together and your own uh, paradise. Mm-hmm. And I think that men find themselves kind of at a loss. And one of the things that I, uh, I discovered while uh, researching monogamy and its history is that polygamous societies usually were very, very violent. And polygamous yeah. societies today are still extremely violent. And what yeah. happens is that if you have a few high-status yeah. men, uh, yeah. you know, with all the women, <laughs> you know, they're, they have harems of women and they can have multiple wives. You leave a big portion of low status men, which usually just means the young men coming of age full of testosterone and they don't know what to do with themselves. And that has translated usually into war and, you know, rape and pillaging and uh, crime and, uh, you know, whatnot. And some civilizations have translated that into conquering neighboring villages uh, but but today, I think what we're seeing is we are just numbing men with porn and with um, whether it's drugs or pharmaceuticals and all sorts of addictions. But men are just taking all of that vital energy and numbing themselves, which I think is really unfortunate. And I'm personally a little afraid of this AI sex robots trend just right. on a societal level and what it can do to us because... I think that's just going to take a whole generation out of the game, which mm-hmm. I think is a shame. So mm-hmm. what have you seen in terms of, you know, these trends and where things are going? Okay. So a couple of things I want to say. One is I, I completely understand your concerns. Research right now shows that most people, the vast majority, don't experience porn to be a negative impact on their relationship um, or their sex lives. Now. We could get into the weeds with that right there. I'm I'm surprised. I'm surprised how it's not frying their dopamine systems and yeah. making them like desensitized to any uh, right. sexual stimuli. Not to mention the industry is a, a very problematic one for women. But 
I'll, I'll put I'll put that social agenda aside for a second. How is it how is it affecting people on their individual lives? Most people say it doesn't have a positive or negative. Men and women, most say. So solid research. Now, now there's bad research out there. So just like there's fake news, there's like fake research. So you gotta be careful because that's true. So the solid research shows that about 5% of men and about 3% of women are challenged by their porn use. Now, I don't even want to get, I don't want to get into that other than to just say that, okay, because my concern is where we're headed. Whether, whether or not that makes sense to you or your listeners, the truth of the matter is it's getting more intense. So I'm not really concerned about 2D porn anymore, um, but I am concerned of where we're headed here, like mm -hmm. VR porn and stuff. Right, because right, right. I think expected to have a much bigger impact. I, I, um, I was not at all a, a techie, and never am not a techie. But uh, some years ago, I saw a um, a survey from MIT roboticists. It was just in their like little newsletter that they put out, and the question to the roboticists was, when will AI robotics, when will, when will robotics be humanoid? And they all said, no, the question wasn't, will they be humanoid? Okay. So first of all, I'm thinking what? And they all said between 20 and 50 years. And I'm thinking this could happen in my lifetime that robots can look like humans. It wasn't like you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a robot and a human, but it was certainly like they'd be able to walk around like very human-like. And I'm thinking that's, wow, that can happen in my lifetime. As a sex therapist, I'm thinking, well, people are going to want to have sex with that. Then fairly soon after that, I read a survey that was published um, in an academic peer-reviewed journal of, it was an interview of AI experts. This was at an international conference and they asked the same question, which is when will AI be humanoid? So that's like the Alexa, that's the brain and the robot. Right, the right. essentially the same. 20 to 50 years, we're gonna speak to a computer and not really, it's gonna sound just like human. So now I'm thinking, okay, we're going to put that brain in this body and this could happen in my lifetime. People are really going to want to have sex with that. So that's how I got started in this whole journey of trying to understand sex tech and where we're headed. And at that time, I, um, I found uh, an annual uh, Sex and Love with Robots conference. And so I said to my husband, like, I need to go and I need to... <laughs> But you tried this up. Oh, no, what I'm gonna find, but I absolutely. Need to so off we went to Brussels. So what did you find there? Oh my gosh, I learned so much, and the people were very enthusiastic about uh, about where we were headed with robots and sex robots in particular. We need to be in on this dialogue for sure, as do, do people. But that's how I got into this. Now, what I can now jump. Jump ahead to like my current concerns of, for example, VR porn. So for users that, for, for listeners who have never tried VR, it's super powerful. Um, if I may tell one more story, I know we're getting towards the end of it. No, no, go for it, please. Okay. So um, I wanted to, to get a sense of what VR was all about. So a few years ago, I, I, my, my husband's been a great support through all of this. So we, we were in New York City and there was a um, an Oculus store. So Oculus is the most common form of right. glass. Okay. So you go into this Oculus store, you could put on glasses and try these different games. And so this was my opportunity to try out virtual reality. So we go into this shop and it was all these like shoot 'em up games, you know, the aliens and the dinosaurs and this and that. And, 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 and 
So the only thing I could find that seemed tolerable was called Walk the Plank, which was a, oh, yes, wow. that's I can imagine. So, yes. So it's a piece of wood on the floor. You put on the glasses. This very fun woman who was running the game was like, I'll just stand here with you. You'll feel like you're going up an elevator. The doors will open. You'll look like you'll think you're over a New York City street, like 30 floors up. And then you just walk the plank. Okay. So, but we were laughing. I mean, it was funny. So I put on my glasses and she's right with me. The elevator goes up. My husband's right next to me. I can hear him. Um, and it does feel like you're going up the elevator. The doors open and it really was exactly like standing 30 floors unprotected above a New York city street. I grabbed this woman in a bear hug. Like we were laughing so hard, but I couldn't move. So I'm holding on to her. She's cracking up. I'm cracking up. I hear my husband cracking. <laughs> it was really funny, but I couldn't let go of her to take my glasses off. And then it was my husband's turn. I thought, well, he's going to look great now that he saw what I just did. So they were riding up again. We're all laughing. He rides up the elevator. The doors open and there's this silence. He stops laughing and he sits down on the ground like he sat down. <laughs> wow 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 so this right. stuff is real this stuff is that's, real that's right so the, the what makes it so powerful is you know what's really going on there's no question you're not confused am i really 30 floors above the new york city street no but your body responds to your senses and yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. your body sees and so you have the physical reaction even though your your mind knows exactly what's going on that's how potent it is that's why as we take porn into the VR sector, which we already have research to prove how potent it is, that's where my worries come. And in particular with adolescents having access to this stuff, because it is so potent. We've got research that shows that was done last year from an infertility clinic. Um, it's strange, but it just proves the potency where they compared semen samples from guys who watched 2D porn in the clinic, you know, to give a semen sample and guys who watch VR porn and the VR porn samples were higher semen quality. Wow. So, right. So we have research that shows that men who watch 2D porn didn't have an oxytocin release, but when they watched VR porn, they did because it feels more personal wow. because it's so real that wow. it feels like it's right. So here's where, this is where we're heading. It's not stoppable, but I think that we need, there, there's so many other pieces of this in terms of sex tech, in terms of the, the potency and, and what's changing. But I think we need some consciousness about where we're going so we can approach this a little more mindfully. Um, because what I can also tell you is overall, males are more, uh, uh, find this this sort of stimuli more compelling than females for all kinds of reasons. I mean, let me throw out a few of you. Real, yeah, yeah, you no, real. these are important for women to know, especially. Yeah, yeah. So females have a higher disgust response in general, and that translates also into a higher disgust response sexually. This is one of the reasons why female libido goes down over time. Right, we're more selective. It, it plays a function right. here. Oh, there's that. There, uh, the fact that females find more things. Uh, less things exciting and females sex drive is generally lower. These are reasons why females in general, they'll find some fun in VR. It'll be more of a good time. It'll be funny. It'll be a release. But males have the the makeup to have this stuff be 
uh, more complaint for them. And as this stuff gets released and males tend to, you know, engage more, my fear is that we're not going to understand the biology behind this and the social issues that we've been, you've been bringing up today, and we're going to pathologize men for this. And I worry that this is just going to make the, the gender controversies that we already see, like, intensify. So that does worry me as a sex therapist. Yeah. So I, I want to add to that. I think that um, women are often surprised by how visual men are uh, when it comes to sex. And VR really taps into that, you know, having all of those senses stimulated that that is uh, very impactful right. and women on the other hand women's porn you know the best-selling porn was 50 shades of right. gray women love a good story behind the relationship to to get aroused so i think this is definitely going to target men more and in terms of the pathologizing you know putting it to the side for a moment i think the fact that uh they found oxytocin to be released in vr this does have the potential for men to really bond yeah. uh, yeah. with with, you know, whether it's an avatar or whether it's an, a robot. But there is uh, even a deeper kind of potential for addiction yes. here. It, it won't even feel like an addiction, really. It'll feel like a bond. It will feel like I know this person. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's, you know, we can only speculate <laughs> what will happen. I think that on a positive note. I would be happy to see the porn industry reduced because yeah. it does prey on a lot of young women. And, you know, there's a lot of liberals uh, touting sex work is work yeah. and um, female empowerment. I think that destroying your uh, chances at marriage long term yeah. is an empowering and the shame that you have to deal with years later yeah. And most women don't make a lot of money on it. There's a very big difference uh, between earning $200 an hour or $20 an hour. And most women are not in the $200 an hour bucket, to put it really simply. Uh, and a lot of them are um, exploited at a very young age where their prefrontal cortex isn't fully baked and, you know, they're, they don't have the good sense to, uh, to say no to these mm -hmm. things. Sometimes they go willingly, sometimes they don't. Uh, but either way, it, it has a very negative effect. And if this could replace that, mm -hmm. you know, that is, that is definitely a positive. What it will do for, for men, I wonder if it will keep them from pursuing real live women and real long-term relationships. Do you, do you see that happening? I do worry about it. We see that in other countries like Japan, that they're showing some signs right. of that. Um, I just, I just worry about that. I, I don't know what to say. I, I, I'm, I'm more worried about adolescents and their brains being exposed to this stuff when they're not yet fully formed in terms of their frontal cortex and this right, is going right. to uh, impact their understanding because when adult the, the average age that adolescents see porn is age 13 and most of them haven't had a sexual relationship at age 13 so that they they have no basis for understanding what they're looking at um and how that's going to impact them as they age that worries me and we are already seeing a change in sexual behavior on college campuses for example in college students their most recent sexual experience um, for women, um, one third of them involved choking. Now, 
we understand that we're guessing that's related to what they're seeing in porn and thinking that's what everyone does during sex. Now, I have no problem with people choking during sex, but in college, it would seem to me that it's not likely that they're putting that in a context of other kinds of sex. And in fact, more women were choked in their last sexual relationship than used a vibrator. And the research doesn't support that choking is increasing their sexual pleasure. So, you know, I risk looking sex negative when I say stuff like this. And believe me, I am not. Uh, my, my, my role in my career has been to help people enjoy their sex lives. But what I am saying is that without a context, like what, what kids are learning um, worries me. I agree. I don't see that as being sex negative. You know, there's a big difference between being in a committed relationship and doing that between and then college students uh getting drunk and the first time they hook up this is what the guy whips out because this is what he's been exposed to in porn and thinks that this is what women enjoy and maybe she would even enjoy it if you guys were in a relationship and she felt safe with you but that kind of power dynamic not to not to put a damper on it because that can excite people. But as you said, there is context. Right. And if that's um, in an exploitative manner, if it's coming at the expense of, of you know, making sure that she's enjoying herself, and if it's a hookup between two college students, most likely this is, you know, just masturbation for him. I do think that a lot of women who have grown up in this very liberal culture you know and they've grown up uh, with porn and you know all the guys around them are watching porn and I think a lot of them think that they need to do these things and that that's what's going to make the guy like them and even if she's initiating that you know if it's not in uh, the context of a relationship uh, a lot of times women are are trying to impress the guy you know with their sexual prowess at this age that's right uh and it's an and the yeah. female competition on college campuses is 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 different now than it used to be so women are competing for the guy and it can very well be that she's thinking that this is the way to to have a partner there there's so much here we really could talk for five hours about it. we really could we really could this has been so amazing and i just want uh, you to let everybody know where they can find you we talked about your psychology today blog so where can they find that So it's called The Future of Intimacy on Psychology Today. If you put that in Google, you'll find it. You don't even need my name, Um, but Marianne Brandon. So that's the way to do it. I hope to start a podcast with my husband who is in sexual medicine next year. So uh, my hope would be to give you a call and come on our. (laughs) Yes, please do. Please do. And I mean, you have such an energy. So I'm sure that this is going to be a great success. Uh, And people, people need to hear about this stuff just in in terms of men understanding women better and women understanding men better and realizing that even though monogamy has its challenges, it's worth it to invest it uh, in the long run. Beautiful. Set. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, Marianne. It's been wonderful.